Welcome back to the show. Rick Tittle with you coast to coast and around the world on the American Forces Radio Network. It's a pleasure to welcome back to the show Neil deGrasse Tyson, the number one New York Times bestselling author and astrophysicist. He has a new book, a Star Talk book. It's called To Infinity and Beyond A Journey of Cosmic Discovery, which is available from National Geographic. Neil, welcome back to the show. And, and I can just imagine you're at the point now of your career where you can say, I'm writing a book, and the publishers are like, good, go ahead. Or am I wrong? Do they still say things like, now what? Oh. <laughs> well, thanks for having me back on, Rick. The, uh, so books come out when, when they spill out of me. You know, when there's enough, you don't want to write a book just for the sake of writing a book. There's got to be a reason, a justification, a need uh, that you perceive in the public. And this book emanates from my podcast, Star Talk. This is a Star Talk book. And my podcast uses three sort of DNA strands. There's science threaded with pop culture and humor. And what we've learned over the many years is when you package science that way, people come back for more. So we felt it was time to tell the story of our species' ascent from Earth into the atmosphere to the moon, Mars, and beyond, not only physically, but also intellectually. What does it take to dream about going to the stars? How out of reach is that compared with 300 years ago when it, someone says, I dream of going to the moon? They're like equally out of reach. Yet, so there's nothing to tell me that we can't still accomplish it going forward. That's to the infinity and beyond part of the book. So, yeah, and the book is, is, is published by National Geographic, so the book looks good, because that's how they roll, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's nicely illustrated, and there's art and beautiful photos from the James Webb Space Telescope, all highlighting the, the themes and topics of this journey. I was going to mention the James Webb Telescope, because I, I watched the little documentary about, you know, the 100 and whatever points, fail points, the things that could go wrong, and... It works, and what it has done, I'm not going to say it makes the Hubble telescope uh, look like something you get at a, at a kitty store, but well, I mean, it. but say it. Say it. Say it. Say it. it looks like a Kmart special. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. But for you, I mean, to, to have this happen in your lifetime, how amazing is that telescope? Well, so, yeah, what it's doing more of is turning uh, not just our solar system, but the galaxy the Milky Way galaxy and its splendors, it's turning that into our backyard. So space, we become more comfortable with space. And part of the journey of ascent from Earth's surface is, are we so comfortable? Yeah, I want to visit that. What would it take to go there? Now, right now, a generational ship would be the only way to go to the stars, because if I put you on our fastest rocket and aimed you towards uh, Alpha Centauri, the nearest star system, to the sun, it would take 50,000 years to get there. You're long dead. So what generational ship is, you take a bunch of people who are very fertile, they have babies, the babies grow up, the previous generation dies, then they have babies, and this continues a thousand generations, then they arrive at the star. And you say, well, that's the only way we can think of doing it today, but that may sound as primitive as someone 400 years ago saying, let's build a sailing ship and sail through the atmosphere to get to the moon. How quaint, right? Mm -hmm. So what we really need is a wormhole. We, that, it works on paper, right? Mm -hmm. I can describe a wormhole that'll get us to Alpha Centauri, but 
but it needs a magical, mythical substance that doesn't exist, that gives negative gravity, that enables you to pry open the fabric of space-time and keep it open and create the hole and travel through the hole. And you might say, now you're just talking science fiction. What, you know, stop the conversation. No, I'm not going to stop it, because 300 years ago, if you said, how would you get to the moon? Well, we need this magical substance called rocket fuel, and you need this magical object called a rocket. And you, you'll look at me like, what? What is that? <laughs> I don't know. And it would take hundreds of years to get there, but we did. So, yeah, this is... Oh, and part of the DNA is the pop culture part. So as we talk about this journey and the fits and starts, if there's a movie, a Hollywood movie, that happened to touch those themes... We'll talk, I'll talk, you know I'm going to talk about the science that they got right, or, and especially the science they got wrong. And this makes it a little more relevant as you go through the discussion. I also wanted to ask you about Mexican aliens, and this isn't political. Oh, okay, I'm talking go for it. I'm talking, I'm talking about the ones yesterday at the Mexican Congress. Apparently the two little aliens that were discovered in, in Peru, they look like little cement mummified guys. They look exactly what Hollywood says aliens look back. Was that a good laugh for you, or did you think, well, hold on, let me take a closer look? So, I'm not going to prejudge it. I, I do have some questions just on the top of it. If they're aliens from another planet with, like, no DNA in common with us, then they should look really different, because all life on Earth has common DNA, mm -hmm. and most life on Earth does not look human. Right? We have oak trees and worms and lobsters and fish. And, you know, so, so where are we coming off with an alien that has a head, two eyes, a nose, a mouth, uh, a neck, shoulders, arms, torso, <laughs> hip, and femur bones in its legs? That feels a little weird. Also, mummies, you know, most of your flesh is decomposed, okay, by then. That would include your nose. There's no bone in your nose. There's just this open <laughs> cavity for your skull. That alien had a nose. How do you keep your nose? If you're going to make it humanoid, you don't have a nose after 2,000 years in a mummy, okay? All right, so, so that's my first thought. My second thought was, okay, maybe these are real, and you do what scientists do. You share the data with other people so they can analyze it as well. You share it with skeptics. You share it with supporters of yours. You share it with people who have no opinion one way or another. And if they get the same results as you, that it's some living material, living thing that's not of this earth, then we've got an objective truth we can talk about. But until then, what the press does, it goes to the single report of an extraordinary phenomenon, and they say, oh, scientists say, you know, the only occasion scientists say anything is if we come to an agreement of experiments and observation that something is true. Now you can say scientists say. But until then, you just have to say, this one scientist says this one thing, and it has not been verified yet. The verification process is everything. And what's odd is the, the, the guy is there in Congress, and he's swearing to tell the truth. Like, that's the measure of what is true in this world, what people say after they swear. That is not how you do things, not at least in the scientific community. All right, we only got about a minute. Great answer, by the way. When I was a kid, in the, I'm in my 50s, and I was a kid, I would see, like, you know, Nova or Carl Sagan would go on Johnny Carson, and, 
He would talk about, you know, Saturn's rings or snowballs in space. So for you, what did Carl, I mean, Carl Sagan for me may be interested. What did Carl Sagan do for you? Well, I was already interested in the universe before I knew anything about him. But I met him when I was in high school. Mm. I had applied to colleges. Cornell was among them where he was a professor. Cornell admitted me, but I was still not sure if I wanted to go. Unknown to me, they sent my application to him. He then wrote a letter to me inviting me to explore the campus and his lab to help me decide if I want to go to attend Cornell. I go up there. My parents say, this is Carl Sagan. you got to go. I went. He met me outside the building. It was in December. It was cold. I toured his lab. He did a a no-look reach back from his desk, pulled a book, which is one of his books, a no-look reach for your book, right? That was, I thought that was badass. Uh Signed it to me. I still have it. And I'm ready to go back. It begins to snow. He says, if the bus can't come through, here's my home number. Stay with my family. Leave tomorrow. And I said, who am I for him to do this? And I said, if I'm ever as remotely famous as Carl Sagan, I will treat the next generation of students the way he has treated me. So to this day, I could be on the, if a student comes to the door, I could be on the phone and say, Barack, I got to go. I got a student. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he, 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 uh, I'm exaggerating just a little there, but. But he saw something. That was a forever imprint upon me. Yeah, I'm interrupting you because we got to run, but that is an amazing story. He saw something in you, which is really cool. And then you went to Harvard instead. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the new book. That's another story, but yeah. <laughs> the book is called To Infinity and Beyond, A Journey of Cosmic Discovery, a Star Talk book by Neil deGrasse Tyson, our guest, along with Lindsay Nix-Walker. It is available from National Geographic. Always great having you on, Neil. Thanks for coming back. Congratulations on the book. Thanks, Rick.